This podcast is an initiative of core to ed and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ipsen, Kiwikiran and Ultragenics. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution, employer, organisation or other group or individual. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the core to ed website. Hello and welcome to the third podcast in our series covering rare bone disease highlights from ASBMR 2021. Today we are delighted to be joined by representatives from two rare bone disease patient advocacy groups who are going to share their insights with us on some of the data presented at the ASBMR conference and what they consider to be the potential impact of this data for patients. I would like to introduce Charlene Waldman, Alliance Director of the Rare Bone Disease Alliance in the United States, and Innes Alvis, Founder and Steering Committee Member of the European Rare Bone Forum based in Portugal. Welcome Charlene and Innes. Now I know you have selected a few oral and poster presentations for discussion today, but before going to that, I would like to capture your insights on the work you've seen presented on rare bone diseases at ASBMR this year. Charlene Waldman here. First of all, very, very gratifying that there's a very large number of abstracts and presentations on rare bone disease this year, more than in past years. It's not surprising that most of those abstracts are on the most common rare bone diseases, OI, fibrous dysplasia, and the XLH disorders. However, it is really gratifying that there are abstracts on at least two ultra-rare disorders. So that is very encouraging that the research community is looking at the ultra-rare conditions. And I know that the patient groups that deal with those ultra-rare conditions will be very pleased about that. Well, I can also stress that there are some uh, of the rare bone conditions being addressed after several years on continuous research. Yet, in some cases, it didn't translate yet to effective treatments to patients as approved treatments. So far, only for five conditions. But it's really positive to see this momentum of research uh, occurring in rare bone conditions. And we absolutely want to progress uh, faster and collaboratively uh, for that. And regarding the translational concept of research, I feel the need to stress that the goal for translational research It's really to move uh, from basic science discoveries more quickly and effectively into um, practice, the practical real life. Yet we are still far away from that and we need to have meaningful and applicable results that directly benefit uh, individuals' well-being. And um, I'm absolutely sure that patient organizations and patient experts will continue fostering the research on rare bone conditions in the next years. And collaboration among all stakeholders is absolutely the key. Thank you for that. Um, Now, if we move to your selected abstracts, you've identified a couple for X-linked hyperphosphatemia. Perhaps you could tell us which ones they are. 
So the first abstract was also selected for oral presentation, and it was the neurological and psychiatric manifestations of X-link hypososatemia in a longitudinal cohort study, the XLH disease monitoring program. So to start, XLH uh, is a lifelong phosphate washing disorder with increase in FGF23 activity, leading to short stature and skeletal deformities, with an average prevalence of one case in each 20,000 birth. So one of the interesting points on this monitoring program is that, in fact, is a registry with more than 650 cases from multiple countries, um, including different patients' ages. So the goal of this presentation was to identify uh, the prevalence of neurological and psychiatrical symptoms in adults and children as spinal stenosis, headache, depression and anxiety. Oddly, uh, only 5% of the adults complained of uh, musculoskeletal pain. Yet, a significant percentage used pain medicines, something to be better understood. Regarding psychiatric manifestations, 15% of adults reported depression and 12% reported anxiety, which are higher percentage compared to the average population, but children's percentage on psychological impact were significantly lower. So researchers looked for the correlations to access um, if deeper uh, physical changes could relate to pain and neurological signs, and if psychiatric manifestations could be related to, for instance, body shape, pain, or the social burden of living with a rare bone condition. So the data presented highlighted the need that pain management in rare bone conditions is critical and not yet cared properly. So a relevant output for this presentation is that beyond identification of neurological and psychological burden, strategies to reduce or minimise those are absolutely needed. Thanks for sharing those insights, Innes. Um, so Charlene, the other abstract you selected was the patient perspective, XLH requires whole body, whole life, whole family care. How do you think these results might affect the management of patients with XLH? First of all, it's a, it's a big step forward that the research community is now looking at these life issues in addition to, quote unquote, scientific factors. And uh, that's needed for all these rare bone diseases. As this philosophy is more widely adopted, and we hope it will be, then it would certainly have a have a good chance of improving the life of these rare bone disease patients so that people are concerned about not just their specific bone orthopedic issues, etc., but their life and how they're dealing with whichever disease they have. So that's that's a big step forward in research direction. And it's not something that we've seen necessarily over the last few years. So this is new and positive. Great, thank you for that. So should we move on to talk about fibrodysplasia vesificans progressiva? Fibrous dysplasia is a a very prominent and often seen rare bone disease. However, there is no drug that has been really even studied or approved for this disease. So since 
the people who have fibrous dysplasia have all sorts of problems, orthopedic pain and other problems. It's important that they be looked at again in a whole person perspective. This is a new approach and it's very, very positive and very helpful. Thank you, Charlene. So Innes, I believe you've also selected the Palavaratine MOVE trial for discussion. Could you take us through the highlights of that, please? Definitely. Um, so one of the uh, highlights of this um, presentation was that uh, it was observed a reduction on, uh, of 62% of new heterotopic ossifications with Palavaratine. Yet they they still occur. It's it's not a cure we know and we are totally aware of that. But a reduction of this in heterotopic ossifications is um, a really good improvement. As most um, medicines, also uh, side effects occur. But um, far beyond understanding that having a drug is not like taking a glass of water. We are seeing a progression towards a new medicine for an ultra-rare uh, bone disorder, and this is a huge factor. So what could, in fact, um, benefit patients with FOP while um, a drug is still to be approved is definitely an early diagnosis, which can uh, allow to be initiated a proper clinical care in order to avoid harmful procedures and, for instance, removal of the flares. So it, it's really um, the, the um, improvement of quality of care that will take um, ahead the quality of life that we expect for patients while um, medical treatment uh, is still not available. That's great. Thank you. So should we move on to talk about osteogenesis imperfecta now? Uh, osteogenesis imperfecta has many types, ranging from less severe to very severe. And as we said earlier in this session, uh, it is one of the most commonly seen rare bone diseases. However, with it all and through all the years that patients have been seeing experts there is still no approved therapy. So the fact that a new study is taking place now is very, very helpful for these patients. And uh, they and the doctors and the scientists and everyone involved in the OI world is optimistic that things will change in a few years and that there will be one or more therapies that will be helpful to these patients. OI requires treatment by many different specialists, as do most of the rare bone diseases. There are so many specialists that have to be involved due to the variations in the way that OI affects patients, physical therapy, orthopedists, ophthalmologists, respiratory is very important. So it's a very, very big task for these patients to get the proper care in addition to therapy. Thank you, Charlene. So Innes, would you like to give us your views on the asteroid study in OI and also perhaps the key points on the systematic review that you identified for this area? It's um, a very interesting study. The TETs um, and highlights that uh, although OI 
is often put in the same bag, the different types of OI with eye clinical variability, I like the men to have specific trials for specific types. And it's something that I, I see um, yet to be uh, accomplished. Um, and OI is definitely one of the rare bone conditions more studied and with more powerful patient organizations um, leading research. But it's a study that will definitely help um, patients and uh, organizations to better care for um, OI uh, individuals and to better understand what are um, the aspects that need to be tackled together in different types of OI and the ones that need to be tackled individually. And now taking on the systematic review, the patient clinical journey and socioeconomic impact of osteogenesis imperfecta, we selected this um, presentation because it was in fact practical. And definitely as patient representatives, we need to have practical guidance. And um, the interesting points and highlights of this study was that the results were a sum of a collection of more than 7,000 publications. And one of the points that was stressed out was the existence of very limited publications on the economic burden, uh, either for the individual and the close family that uh, are in most um, situations carers. So in many clinical studies that were identified, most were related to um, bone health and very few uh, dedicated to diagnosis and care and monitoring, something that um, patient organizations stress a lot because um, when we are talking about rare bone conditions and most of the rare conditions, it's, um, it's the same as saying this is a lifelong situation. So this monitoring is absolutely critical. And the study also presented a lack of guidance for transition. It's also frequent to see many patients, many adult patients being left aside in healthcare because they had uh, care when they were um, children, but that uh, didn't uh, follow along to adult age, so a transition would uh, be needed. Also, um, this presentation talked about uh, physical functioning of the individuals and also about mental health, which is heavily important and very limited approach in most um, rare bone conditions. And one of the most important points for families and for individuals that it's hardly identified, is economic burden. And it heavily depends on the country. Many families don't have proper care, sometimes because they cannot afford traveling to referral centers. And one of the things that is still to be uh, unveiled is the health-related quality of life of close families, most in the most cases, parents, siblings, or the carers. And again, this is transversal to the vast majority of rare bone diseases. So thanks for sharing your perspective with us on that. Um, was there any other data that particularly stood out for you from the rare disease presentations this year? We have to highlight one presentation on fibrodysplasia. 
regarding the effect of a multidisciplinary care pathway on quality of life and pain uh, for patients with FD and McConnell-Bride syndrome. And what is interesting in this um, presentation is that this is in fact one of the most frequent rare bone conditions with a high prevalence of 1 to 5,000 to 10,000 births. And what is interesting is that uh, researchers observed a significant improve in quality of life just for adding a follow-up. And it seems so basic idea, yet it had a very significant improvement in the way patients were perceiving their condition on having a structured assessment by a multidisciplinary team. And it heavily gives us an idea that um, multidisciplinary care is absolutely key for uh, either fibrodysplasia or any other rare bone condition. So this is uh, one of the most critical and positive points from this paper. We also um, identify one paper uh, on hyposocialtasia that was related to mobility and healthcare-related quality of life with adults. And uh, this was... Um, a paper reflecting the work conducted uh, to assess function and QOL uh, on the intake of uh, acetate alpha in adults with HPP uh, with pediatric onset. And in fact, what was observed was that there was a significant reduce of fractures, significant reduce of pain, and improve in mobility. So pain is one of the biggest hurdles in rare bone environment, and we need to assess that properly and to make sure that individuals have a good pain management, as this paper also reflected, and uh, can be transferred to many uh, other rare bone conditions. Thank you. So before we close, do you have any take-home messages from the conference that you would like to share with our listeners? And perhaps we can start with you, Charlene, first. I certainly do. As we said in the beginning of this session, it is very satisfying and gratifying that the rare bone disease research at this particular meeting, ASBMR, has enlarged and improved. And that is also due to many, many years of work by many of us individuals and organizations, you know, in the field. But as Ines has said over and over, this is not enough. There has to be more. There has to be much more collaborative efforts between clinicians, basic researchers, professional societies, and the patient organizations has to improve and continue. So the message is we have to keep going. We are pleased with improvements, but we have a long, long way to go. But we are very fortunate that we have those experienced, dedicated, and dedicated is really an important word here, group of clinicians and scientists. Would you like to add to that, Ines? It's very relevant, uh, the participation of patient organizations and representatives 
in conference as SBMR because uh, this is the practical example of how collaborative work can be done and it's the way to achieve meaningful outcomes in medical care and research is through this collaboration, this participatory uh, action and engaging actively with patients, with clinicians, with researchers and industry. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Charlene and Innes, for joining us today. Um, we've had a great discussion and thank you for sharing the patient perspective on this data. I'd also like to thank our listeners and we'd encourage you to tune into our other podcast from the ASBMR 2021 series. Thank you again for listening. This podcast was brought to you by CoreToEd Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.